gather together is to do what we just did. One of the primary reasons we gather together is to sing. Singing is not a side dish to the main course. Singing is part of the main course. It's a primary thing that we do as believers when we gather together is to sing. And so you might say, I thought we gathered together to worship. And yes, yes, we gather together to worship. That's true. But you cannot separate worship from singing. It is a great confusion to think that somehow our singing is somehow different than our worship. Because they're not two separate things. They work together. You see, a part of worship is singing. Now, there's more to worship than just singing. That doesn't summarize all that worship is. And sometimes we make that confusion, don't we? We think, I'm going to worship when we're singing. But that's not the only part of worship. Worship is hearing God's word. Worship is prayer. Worship is many other things. Everything we do as a church should be worship. But singing is certainly a primary part of our worship that we come together to do. You see, worship, right worship, requires that we express the value and the worth of God. That's what, that's what worship really is when you think about it. When we're trying to understand what is worship, it's expressing the value and the worth of God. You see, what we need to do to rightly worship God, we must come to His Word and hear His Word. We, there must be a hearing uh, a, a understanding in our mind of God's word. And there must also be a delighting in the heart in that word, a treasuring of, of that word. And the word magnifies Christ, so it's a treasuring of Christ in our hearts, a delighting in Christ, enjoying of Christ above all things. And then there is an expression of that delight that's required in worship, isn't it? It's not enough just to hear. It's not enough just to delight, but we must also express it. And part of that expression is singing. And we cannot worship God properly if we, there is not an expression of it, if there's not a singing. So it is an essential part of worship is that we come together and sing. And we say that God is our greatest good. We hear it, we believe it, and we say it. God, you are our greatest good. We are not only, it's not only essential to a worship, but God actually commands us to sing. And we owe him a song, don't we? We owe him songs of praise from deep in our hearts. And no matter how bad this whole coronavirus thing gets, we can never be told not to sing. <laughs> we don't bow down to any authority that tells us not to sing because that's what we do. That's who we are and that's what we will continue to do no matter what. We continue to sing. We obey God and we sing as we're called to do. When I first started dating Alicia, she was part of a worship band. And uh, so we're going to a passion conference. And I was kind of excited about hearing the speaker, but we were a little late. And so here I am in a van with a bunch of band members. And so I remember uh, what came out of my mouth was probably not the best thing, most appropriate thing at the moment. I said, 
at least all we're missing is the singing. (laughs) That was not the best impression to be made, right? Especially not to a worship band. But singing is certainly one of a number of different essential parts of worship. It's the fuel that comes to our worship is the hearing of God's word, right? You might want to think of it as a fire, right? And the fuel of worship is the hearing of God's word. It fuels the flame of our worship. And then what comes out of this, the the, the flaming fire in our souls, is our singing, is our obedience, and also our prayers of dependence. All of this is essential parts of our worship. But God is calling us and leading us in this passage to sing a new song, the greatest song of all. And what I want us as a church to do today as we study this passage, I want us to know this song well. I want us to know the song that we are to be singing as a church. And I want us to be known as a church that sings well. I want us to be known as a singing church. So who should sing the song of praise to God? And the answer is everyone and everything throughout the entire cosmos should sing it. And one day in the new heaven and new earth, it will be that way. But we see this in verses 10 through 12, a call for all everywhere to sing. And notice the comprehensiveness of this call. Just think about the words here. Those near are called to sing. Selah would have been those who are near. And those far are called to sing. That would have been the coastlands. Those who are high up in the mountains are to sing. And those who are low down in the oceans are to sing. Those who are in the remotest deserts and the most populated coastlands are all to sing this song. The former enemies of God, the Edomites, and the Ishmaelites, descendants of Ishmael, are to sing. This is amazing. It is, harder, it is hard to imagine expressing a greater comprehensiveness for all who are to sing than what's given here. And what I want us to understand, it does say a new song, doesn't it? But in some sense, this is the same song that has always characterized God's people. If you remember, you go back to Exodus 15. Remember the song that Moses led his people in after they had been delivered from Egypt. It was this incredible song. God is a mighty warrior. And he has fought for us. Just an incredible song. Sometimes if you're reading Paul, you will hear him break out into song. Right in the middle of his writing. As if he can't hold it back. He's speaking of the redemption of God and the work he has done. And he breaks out into songs such as Romans 11, 33-36. God loves to put a heart, a heart of singing in his children. And salvation, in effect, is God putting a new song in our hearts, isn't it? When we are saved, God is putting a song in our hearts, a song we've never sang before, but a song that we love to sing, and that we continue to sing. In fact, whenever we meet together, we are part of this choir. Did you realize that? We are part of this choir that is singing praises to God. As we gather today, and as we're singing, not just the literal songs that we have, but as we speak about God, we are singing the song. We are joining in with this choir. And in fact, this choir is assembling throughout the whole world, isn't it? 
even this morning. And it includes all, people from all different nations, from all over the world, that are part of this choir. God is gathering a choir together from all the nations, and we are a part of it. You can see this gathered choir together in Revelation 5, verse 9. Listen to these words. The 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. They sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for, for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Here are all kinds of people, different people from all different nations, gathered together to praise God. And did you know that this is the reason that missions exist? John Piper said it right when he says, Missions exist because praise does not exist. <laughs> In certain places. And so that's why we go out on mission. That's why we evangelize. You know, really the primary reason why we evangelize, the primary reason why we go out there to the far reaches of the world is not primarily to save people from hell. It's primarily to, for God to create more worshipers of his name throughout the whole world. It's to gather people together from the ends of the earth so that this choir will grow and increase and become louder and louder. So that God will be praised as he so rightly deserves. The missionary William Carey understood really well the importance of this song. At a meeting in the late 1700s, William Carey, who was a newly ordained minister, stood to argue the value of overseas missions. And he was abruptly interrupted by an older minister. And listen to what he said. Young man, sit down. <laughs> you are an enthusiast. When God pleases to convert the heathen, he will do it without consulting you or me. He had missed the importance of the song, didn't he? But praise be to God, William Carey did not sit down. He would go to India where he would become what is considered the founding father of modern missions. And why did he do this? Why did he go at such a great cost? Back then, it was incredibly risky to go anywhere, nevertheless, across the oceans. Why did he do this? Because he understood the importance of the song. He understood what the song is all about. He understood the importance of praising God. And we should be committed to this song as well. And we should be just as passionate that this song continues throughout all the nations. So no other song demands such a comprehensive choir as this one, does it? So what, kind of, what, what could compel such a song? What could compel such a comprehensive song that, that needs to be sung throughout the whole world? Well, our biggest clue as to what this song is about and what compels it is in the words that we see here, a new song. What is meant by a new song? And what we find is a very similar word at the end of verses 1 through 9, where God says, I'm going to do a new work. Notice he did these former works, which was the things he said were going to happen in Cyrus, but there was a new work he was going to do. And that new work was the servant song, what the servant was going to come and do. That was the Messiah was going to come. 
and bring justice to the nations. And that is what compels this song to be sung. It is that very work that the Messiah was going to do that compels the song that's going to be sung throughout the whole world to go forth. You see, this work is clearly not God's deliverance from Egypt, is it? The song is not based on God's deliverance from Egypt in Exodus 15, verse 3 through 12. And that was a great work, wasn't it? And that deserved a great song. But this is an even greater song. This new work is also not deliverance from Babylon, is it? God's people were going to be delivered from Babylon, but that is not what compels this song to be sung. It's not what this song is primarily about. It is much bigger than God's deliverance from Babylon. The new work the servant will accomplish, the working out of God's plan, is the work that Jesus Christ would accomplish in bringing the gospel to us for our good and for his glory. Remember we said what it means to bring justice to the nations. And just think about, put your, try to put your mind around the reality of what this means. That he'll bring justice to the nations. It means he'll bring the fullness of his righteous and good rule to this earth. Remember we said we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We are longing for the fullness, the establishing of his kingdom on this earth. He's going to bring light to the nations. He's going to open the eyes that were blind. Bring the prisoners out of the dungeon, right? He's going to bring forgiveness of sins, a restored relationship with God, a new covenant, right? The greatest victory ever. And this is the good news of the kingdom that Christ has brought to us. So you were saved to sing this song. Did you know that? 1 Peter 2 verse 9 says this, You were saved to proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Does that deserve singing? Is there anything else that deserves our singing more than that? Well, the answer is there's nothing else. But as if you needed something else, what we see here are more reasons that should compel us to sing. We're given further explanations, further reasons why we should be compelled to sing to God in the next few verses. So you should be compelled to sing praises to God because he is a zealous and a mighty warrior. We see that in verse 13. See, God wants us to think of him as a mighty warrior. Did you know that God wants you to think of him as a mighty and a zealous warrior? He's actually called a warrior throughout the Bible. In different places. And what this means is that there's an enemy that God is fighting against. There's, there's someone that God is against that he's fighting. And there is someone that God is fighting for in behalf of. And when it says that he stirs up his zeal, what this means is that God is not a reluctant warrior. But a zealous warrior. He is zealous to fight for his glory and for your good. This is the type of warrior you want. What, what, what type of warrior do you want to fight for you? Do you want one who's ducking, who's scared, who's trying to protect themselves? Or do you want one who is fearless, who is zealous, who is passionate to fight in your behalf? I think of Stonewall Jackson, who go right in the front of the battle. How, how would that stir up his people, his men? This is a God who is zealous to fight. And that's exactly 
the kind of God you want. And notice how it expresses the greatness of his zeal through this intimidating war cry. Apparently, at times, when nations would go out to war, they would sometimes cry out this blood-curdling cry in order to intimidate their opponents. But that's exactly what we see God is doing here. He's giving this blood-curdling cry. It's kind of scary just to even think about it, isn't it? And it's intimidating. It's intimidating to his opponents, to psyching them out. Apparently, this was, uh, there was a famous Confederate rebel yell in the Civil War that they would cry out. God is expressing his great zeal to fight for his glory, which is our good. Not only is God zealous, but what does he do here? Is it just passion? Is it just zeal? No, it's matched by his ability to accomplish everything he has set out to do. God is a mighty warrior, and nothing or no one can stand against him. He accomplishes every purpose. No one can stand against him. There is no no difficulty with God. If the servant is Jesus, then how are we to view him as a mighty warrior? Well, we know that Jesus came to us and went and died on a cross, don't we? We know he came and died for us on a cross, and that does not appear like a mighty warrior, does it? When we look at the cross, we see someone dying. We see death. We see what appears to be weakness. But in fact, it was through his death and his resurrection that he defeated our enemies. What we see on the cross is a mighty warrior who is fighting in our behalf. It was through the cross that the devil was defeated, that he canceled our debt of sin. Colossians 2 verse 14 actually depicts Jesus and his work on the cross and his resurrection as being a battle, as as if he was a warrior. And so this isn't just me saying this. This is the Bible that says we are to see Jesus going to the cross as a mighty warrior defeating our enemies. We have victory only through him. And we have complete victory through him. Perhaps one of the reasons why we see this great, mighty warrior God depicted here is because we might be tempted to think of God as weak from verses 4 through 5 of this chapter when it says he came as in gentleness, right, in meekness. But that does not mean he's weak. You know how many times you look around you and you see depictions of Jesus and he's depicted as this weak, like flimsy person? Well, that is not Jesus. (laughs) That's not Jesus at all. We are not to see him that way. He is a mighty warrior. His grace and his patience does not mean he is weak, but actually adds to the picture of his greatness and his power and his might. When Jesus returns again, he returned as a visibly mighty warrior, not as conquering through death, but as conquering all those that oppose him. I want us to think of Jesus as this mighty warrior when he comes. And the Bible tells us that we need to think of him that way. And look at me at Revelation 19, verse 11 through 16. Look at these verses and think about Jesus this way. Revelation 19, verse 11 through 16. Then I saw the heaven opened. Saw heaven opened. And behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, 
And on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh is a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. What a mighty warrior God we have. His very words that come out of his mouth are enough to strike down every enemy in his path. This is why it's so important to understand. This is why it's so important that you understand that today is the day of salvation. We are not guaranteed tomorrow. We are only guaranteed this very moment. The next moment is not guaranteed. We must make sure that we are right with God. We must make sure that we are in favor with this mighty warrior God. Because one day, he's going to come in judgment. So, today is the day of salvation. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. Make peace with God. You should be compelled to sing because God is longing to give birth to his mighty plans that he has designed for your good and his glory. We see that in verses 14 through 15. So we have some relatively new mothers today with us. And so they would be very aware of the image that God uses to describe the way he works here. You see, there's this waiting period, isn't there, before you can have your baby. I believe it's called gestation. <laughs> and it's nine months. And during this time, the mother is longing and sleeping and trying to catch up with their sleep, but longing for their baby to come, right? They're longing. They're waiting. And so you might wonder, is nothing going on during this time? Well, well that whole time is important. It's part of the process. The, the baby is growing. Things are happening that are necessary for the birth of the baby. There are hidden things going on that are necessary for the development of the baby. And sooner or later... <laughs> That baby's going to come, right? And when this happens, the mom is going to gasp and cry out because labor has begun. God says this is sort of like what he is doing with his plans. God is speaking from the first person here. Did you notice that? He says, I have held myself back. It's almost as if God is impatient here. God is expecting, longing, Desiring to fulfill his plans. He longs to fulfill them. But he waits patiently until the proper time. Has God ever promised anything but not immediately fulfilled it? Ever? Does he ever fulfill anything immediately? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Hardly ever. Right? Think of the Babylonian captivity when it seemed like God was silent for so many years. How about the 400 years of silence before the birth of Christ? Just this, kind of like the pregnant pause, right? <laughs> There's this time of silence before he breaks forth on the scene. 
Sometime during this waiting period, we can think that God has forgotten, can't we? We can think that God is either losing, has forgotten, he's fallen asleep, what's going on, I don't see anything happening, what is God doing here? But he says here that this does not mean God doesn't care. He is, in fact, anxiously longing to fulfill his plans. And this waiting period is actually part of his fulfillment of his plans. This is exactly the way it's supposed to be. And this is exactly what his plans are supposed to look like. This waiting period is part of the fulfillment of his purposes. But when he comes, when God comes once again, you can be sure, when he gives birth to his plans, that the result will be a powerful display of God's might. He will unleash the great earth-altering work of judgment and of devastation that is pictured here. And what, what an interesting picture, this devastation that God is going to bring here. And that's what the picture is of, isn't it? Just this uncreating of the world, this powerful, mighty coming of Jesus. But listen to what Young remarks, a commentator. The implication is that it has been difficult for God to hold his peace when he beheld wicked men forming a kingdom with the express purpose of destroying his own kingdom and bringing his purposes to naught. His own loved ones were the objects of the enemy's wrath. And yet God must constrain himself. Yet he longs to deliver his own and now shrieks aloud as though unable to endure longer. The time for action has arrived. This is why we can sing even while we wait. You see, it is not that God is, is sleeping. We know the end of the story. And we know that God is coming in might and power. You should be compelled to sing because God will lead all who are trusting him to victory. We see that in verse 16. Notice the helpless condition that God's people are in. That really stands out in verse 16. There's this helpless condition that God's people are in. They are blind. They are described as blind. That just means helpless, right? But notice, in addition to their blindness, there's something else that shows them even more helpless. You see, a blind person is very good at being able to remember familiar places. They can kind of make up for what they lack by being able to remember how to get places that they've been before. Here it says they will travel places they have never gone before. So these blind, helpless people are doubly helpless. They're going to go new places they've never been before. What does God say he will do for such helpless people who are depending on him? He will overcome the barriers that prevent them from being delivered to safety. He will guide them as if by his own hand to the destination he is bringing them to. He will transform the environment from darkness to light. And don't get confused by the fact they're blind and there's lightness and what that all means. The point is, God is going to transform. God is going to deliver them to safety. That's the point here. He protects them and takes care of them through all the dangers. It reminds us of a verse, doesn't it? In Proverbs 3, verse 5. One that we're all familiar with. Listen to these words in light of what God says he's going to do for his people. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and what? 
and he will direct your paths. And that's what we see in verse 16, don't we? We see God directing our paths and leading us to victory. And God, so God makes this incredible guarantee here, just an incredible guarantee. He says, I will do this. He didn't have to say that, did he? He didn't have to say, I'm going to do this, but he adds to his words as if to bring double emphasis, kind of like exclamation, exclamation mark. I will do this. And the fact is that we know that there's no one on this earth who's perfectly reliable. Your pastor is not perfectly reliable. Your spouse is not perfectly reliable. None of us are. The only one who is perfectly reliable, the only one who will never fail to do what he says he's going to do is God. And not only does he say he's going to do it, but he emphasizes that he will definitely do it. So you can be sure of what God is going to do. This means that all who trust in God rather than idols will find their trust vindicated on the last day, no matter how it appears in between. There will be no shame for those who trust in Christ. So don't fear. Don't fear, children of God. You're in a good place. You're in God's hands. You should be compelled to sing a song of praise because God will demonstrate the inability of idols to save by putting to shame all who worship them. We see that in verse 17. You see, the idols make a lot of promises, don't they? Well, we kind of confer on them promises, right? <laughs> they don't make any promises. They're not alive. They can't do anything. But we infer all these promises that they make. We believe the lies that they make. They make all these promises that they're going to save us, that they're going to deliver us. But God is the only one who can fill promises. And so God will expo expose the truth of the idols by shaming all who trusted in them. And he will do this through judgment. And notice the chief difference between those who are going to be saved and those who are going to be shamed is what they trust in. Those who are safe are those who trust in God. And those who are shamed are those who trust in idols. So here is a warning. Here is a warning for all who refuse to hear the call of God to sing the song. For all who do not hear this song verberating in their hearts and their minds. For those who are not trusting in God, be warned. If you are singing another song, you will be put to shame. Because God does not compete with idols. And one day will be exposed who the true God is. And you who are trusting in idols will be put to shame. So trust in God, who alone can save. What an interesting ending to the song, isn't it? This is not the way many of us end our songs, is it? We, we end with verses 10 through 11, you know, with a song throughout the whole world. But this song in the next section begins after this statement, where God puts his exclamation mark and says, I will not compete with anyone, but I will expose to the world that there is only one God by saving my people and putting to shame those who trust in idols. How then, how then should you who are part of this choir sing this new song? Well, first of all, you should sing with passion and joy. Your biggest concern when you're singing should be two things. should be, first of all, am I singing the right truths? Am I understanding the right truths? Am I proclaiming the right truths? And secondly, am I singing the right truths with adequate passion? Am I giving him accurate 
glory in honoring him with my desires of my heart. Does my heart resonate with those truths? The degree of our passion for singing should be in direct proportion, think about this, to be in direct proportion to the greatness of the deliverance of victory that God has brought to us. That should be how passionate we are. If God has brought us a small, minor victory, then we should sing in a small and minor, passionate way, right? But if God has brought us a great victory, then we should sing in an equivalently passionate way, shouldn't we? The degree of our passion or singing should also come from the nearness of the deliverance of our victory. You know, if this is something far away, not very personal to you, then our singing is going to kind of reflect that, right? But if this victory is close at hand, if this is a personal victory, then our singing should reflect that truth, shouldn't it? If this is the case, then you and I should not be coerced into singing, have to be coerced into singing this song, should we? You should not be able to hold it back. You should be singing all the day. <laughs> we should be singing all the time, and we should be singing loudly and passionately when we gather together. It is our responsibility to keep this song fresh in our minds and in our hearts. It's important that we stay fueled for singing. John Piper explains how this works. He says, the fuel of worship is a true vision of the greatness of God. The fire that makes the fuel burn white hot is the quickening of the Holy Spirit. The furnace made alive and warm by the flame of truth is our renewed spirit. And the resulting heat of our affections is powerful worship. Pushing its way out in confessions, longings, acclamations, tears, songs, shouts, bowed heads, lifted hands, and obedient lives. And did you know that it's not just about being passionate, that we must be passionate about the right things. You know, we could be the most passionate people in the world and be missing everything. It's not just about passion. It's about being zealous for the right reasons, for the truth of God's word. There's an animated kids movie called Horton Hears a Who that I think illustrates what this wrong passion looks like very well. In this movie, there are these little people who live in Whoville, and they live on a flower. I believe it's a flower. And they're trying to get the elephant's attention from outside so that he can save them. It, you have to watch the movie, otherwise it doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. Right, okay, thank you. So they say passionately over and over again, because they need to get the elephant's attention. They say, we are here, we are here, we are here. And this incredible song arises from all in Whoville. It's an incredible song. They need to get the elephant's attention or they will not be saved. But you know, this is totally different, what we do when we sing our songs of worship to God. This is the total opposite of what we do. We are not singing so that we can get God's attention. That is what all the false religions do. As if we're hoping that God will save us if we sing loud enough. And maybe he'll hear us. But the truth is, God has already won the victory. And we are singing in response to the victory that God has already won for us. So not only should we sing with joy, but we should also sing corporately. 
You know, we owe God corporate singing. It is necessary that we sing alone, ourselves, in our hearts, absolutely. But it is also absolutely essential that we sing corporately. We must come together and sing. You owe this to God. This is something that you owe to God is corporate singing. And there is a message we are proclaiming to the world when we do this about our great God. We need to ask ourselves as we conclude, when am I singing today? Am I singing this song? You see, the problem is never a lack of singing. We are all praising something all the time, aren't we? Everyone is singing praise songs. The question is, what are we praising? We are often praising the wrong things. That's the problem. There are really only two songs in this world. Either you're singing a song of praise to God, or you're singing a song of praise to idols. And you can know what you are singing based on what you value and cherish the most. The world sings what they sing because of what they love. And the reason we sing what we sing is because what we love, what we cherish. So I ask you, what song are you singing? If someone was around you throughout your days, what song would they hear from you? What are you praising? What are you worshiping? What are you valuing? What is your song in your heart? Fixing the problem of worship is never merely about solving a math problem. It requires not only truth, but also proper orientation of our affections. It requires a heart that loves the truth. So you and I need heart changes. You and I need a transformation of our hearts so that we can love what is truly lovely. Ask God to change your heart if this is not your song today. Ask God to reorient your heart if this is your song, but you have not been singing it. It's not characterized you lately. Repent and turn. I need to repent and turn when this is not the orientation of my life, when I'm singing something else. That should be what characterizes our lives, continually turning, repenting, turning towards God to sing purely and wholly this one song of the redeemed, of our great and mighty Savior. And this is what our church should be singing, and we should sing it well. Oh, that God would open up our eyes and that we would sing loudly and clearly to the world around us. Let's, let's pray. Dear Father, Lord, you have given us a song. Lord, you've given us a song to sing, and we love to sing this song. God, I thank you that you've given us something to sing about. Lord, we had no, nothing to sing about. We had no song. Lord, we were those who mourn and cry and those who pretend. We were those who made foolish songs. But you have given birth to a song in our hearts. And the song is of our mighty warrior God who comes and fights in our behalf, who has come and is coming again. Lord, we thank you for the great gospel that you have brought to us. We thank you for this great salvation that you have accomplished in our behalf. Lord, I pray that we would sing. Lord, I pray that no one would be able to silence our voices. I pray that we would sing loudly and that we would sing clearly. Fuel our hearts with your truth. May we continually 
be reoriented and be fanning into flame the fire of worship in our hearts. May you enable us to sing, God, to be the people we were created to be. We thank you for your word. We thank you for speaking to us, for giving us this song today. And Lord, may we sing loudly and clearly of our great and mighty God. In Jesus' name, amen.